You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. And the conception and eventual birth of Ishmael last week. Um, and as we looked at that narrative, we really began to see a lot of human emotion, I think, in that story. Um, as you have Abram and Sarah wrestling and, and grappling with the idea that God has made promise to them about descendants and about children, and yet they continue to get older and older, and the possibilities of having children seem to be less and less. And we said that ultimately Sarah, in this account here, begins to identify personally that while Abram may still be capable of having children, she has reached a point where it does not seem likely that she can. Um, and so she is coming to grips with the fact that God has made promises and doesn't seem to be including her in those promises. Um, and so we saw last week that God's call upon us is to express faith in him, um, oftentimes in a way that attacks our selfish tendencies to want gratification immediately, meaning that faith is ultimately a lesson in patience. And Abram and Sarah are having to learn patience in this account because God's made promises, but then there's been about a decade um, since he's really started to fulfill the promises that they're, that they're longing for the most, I think, the, the children aspect of the promises. God's already told him that the land's coming, but probably not in his lifetime. Uh, he knows that a child has to come in his lifetime, and so they're, they're longing for this, they're anticipating this. Um, but there's some discontentment that settles in with Sarah, uh, wondering if she is going to be included in God's plan. Um, and so we looked at some of her emotions last week, her, her feelings of inadequacy and how she starts to reason from a worldly perspective. She wants to solve the problem in a way that the world would suggest solving it. And so we said, culturally, if you had a husband and a wife that did not have children that were well off uh, with, with uh, material possessions, and we said that Abram and Sarah are, that you could invite another woman into the relationship. She could have children on behalf of the wife that could not. And then that wife could then assume responsibility for those kids and they would become her own and they would be the uh, inheritors of their possessions. And so that's what Sarah convinces Abram to do. Um, and we saw that Abram failed in his leadership, uh, that he yields to Sarah over this, doesn't really uh, discuss it, doesn't really reason through it with her, but just seemingly gives into it. And we said last week that resolving decisions in a hasty manner oftentimes leads to problems that can't be solved quickly. And we saw that last week, this incident, it, it spirals to what we have today with the conflict between um, the people in the Middle East. And so a, a hasty decision, a quick reaction, and we said that Sarah probably wakes up one day and is done with feeling the way that she's feeling and kind of pushes forward and presses forward with this plan to fix the situation. Abram gives into it. And then we see some pride start to manifest itself. One with Hagar, she gets very prideful in her pregnancy. Sarah can't take that, can't stand it. Um, Abram shows pride in that he doesn't try to fix the situation, doesn't recognize that this was a bad idea. Instead, keeps pushing forward with the bad idea and tells Sarah, handle it however you want to. We said that she gets very forceful with Hagar, makes life uh, awful for her to where Hagar wants to now leave. Um, so Sarah's pride had led her to a state of bitterness to where she takes it out on Hagar, a woman that, that didn't ask to be brought into this situation. And we talked last week that Abram and Sarah are called to be agents of blessing, that God has called them to be a blessing to the world. We're included in that now as spiritual descendants of Abram. And so people that interact with us should be the better for it. 
And Sarah here brings in an Egyptian woman, and the Egyptian woman wants nothing to do with her, and most likely nothing to do with her God, based on what she's experienced. So that brings us to uh, picking up where we left off last week with um, what happens to Hagar. How does she uh, handle this situation now that she's fled? Does, does, what, is, what does God do to intervene? How does God resolve this situation moving forward? And so this brings us to our uh, summary sentence for today. So I'm going to go ahead and put that up on the board for us so you can see, uh, or on the TV so you can see where we're going today. Our summary sentence, particularly in times of great distress, believers should pray to the Lord because he hears the afflicted, understands their particular needs, and fulfills relevant promises. That's what we see here in this account with Hagar as she flees and runs to the wilderness um, and begins to make plans for what to do now that she feels rejected by Abram and his family. We see that, that, that God is a God who cares, who is compassionate and extends that compassion. Um, he comes searching for Hagar and, and resolves this situation in a way that satisfies Hagar, uh, meets her needs, consoles her in her, in her time of distress, and puts her kind of back on the right track. Um, and so it's a, a point for us to take in as believers today that in times of great distress for us, that we should pray to the Lord because he does hear the afflicted. He does understand our particular needs, and he does fulfill promises that are relevant to that situation at that given time. As you're copying that down, if, if you're taking notes, Genesis chapter 16, verse 7. It says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over, uh, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Be'er Leharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. All right, so we saw last week that as this plays out with Hagar getting pregnant, she's, uh, she's evidence to the fact that it's not Abram that's the problem in this marriage relationship with Sarah. That Abram is capable of having children. That Sarah seems to be the one that is infertile in this situation. And so that's what kind of leads to that increased bitterness and that overreaction by Sarah. She feels like, okay, I had these inadequate feelings and now those inadequacies are confirmed. I can't give children to my husband. And we saw last week that the timing of the Lord is, is important in this situation because as the New Testament tells us, he's waiting until both are as good as dead. Neither are capable of having children before he gives them Isaac. And so all this does is it shows that it was not the correct timing yet for Isaac because Abram could still physically have children. And so uh, they're, they're called upon to wait a little bit longer for Isaac. 
Uh, in my notes here, though, I put one of the main points of this chapter is the revelation of God's character through his interaction with Hagar. That's, that's, the, that's the point of this passage. Um, God wants us to understand who he is. Now, remember, Genesis is a book of origins. So it's one of the first books that, that's written for God's people that, that's, that's circulated. And so God is revealing himself. Um, he's revealing himself to uh, his creation. And specifically here, Abram and, and Sarah and Hagar, they don't have anything to read about. All they, all they know about God is things that are being passed down to them. And so God further reveals, not only is he the creator of the universe, but he's a God who can see everything, a God who hears everything, and specifically applies those attributes to his people and knows exactly what's going on in their life and how to meet the needs of those uh, distressed and afflicted times that we go through. So I think one of the main points of this chapter is to reveal God's character to, to us through how he interacts with Hagar. Um, in, in our summary sentence here, I think it points us to uh, what we could call the Philippians principle. In, in Philippians chapter 4, we're reminded of the importance of prayer and uh, the, the security and oftentimes the corrective um, measures that it takes in our own life to fix wrong perspectives. It says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And we've been talking about that recently, rejoicing in the promises of God. Even in the midst of trials that were sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Paul tells us that again here. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything or don't worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so this passage points us to the importance to pray with the assurance that God hears. And that's where Hagar ends up glorying in God this morning as we look into this text. She, she glories in the fact that God sees her and that God hears her and that God responds to her. Things that should assure us in our own prayers today. Um, so looking back into this in verse uh, 7, it says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Before we get too far into this, angel of the Lord, who is he? Now, we've talked about this before. Um, I think we did kind of a, a topical sermon on Jesus and who he is in the Old Testament, who he is in the New Testament, how we see him running through the entire uh, scriptures. The, the angel of the Lord, I believe, is best understood as the pre-incarnate Jesus. All right. The, 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 the understanding of who Jesus is, the second person of the Trinity, is sort of veiled in the Old Testament. Right. They're, they're longing for the Messiah. They're looking forward to the Messiah. And Jesus or God is uh, God. The father is progressively revealing the second person of the Trinity. Um, and I think what we see in the Old Testament is him being veiled as this angel of the Lord. Really, the better translation being the messenger of Yahweh. OK, we see Jesus fulfilling that role in the New Testament. Right. He's he's the messenger of Yahweh that comes in bodily form to represent the embodiment of who God is, okay? 
Um, but I believe he's best understood here in the Old Testament as the pre-incarnate Jesus. I mean, we're not going to go too in-depth with it this morning because, like I said, we've talked about it previously. I can refer you to those notes if you'd like to see those or that message. Um, but there's some reasons that I, that I would hold to this, and I think there's some reasons that the, the Old Testament supports this. Um, first of all, if we think in terms of uh, Moses and the burning bush, right? Most of us don't hesitate in saying that before Moses went back to lead the children of Israel out, that God came to him in the form of a burning bush and spoke to him, correct? Like most of us understand that, most of us readily accept that. And yet what we find in Exodus chapter 3 is that it is the angel of the Lord that comes to him. Uh, in Exodus chapter 3, if you want to turn there, uh, Exodus chapter 3 verse 1, it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. There's some interchangeable language there. The angel of the Lord, then God is speaking. And so I, I believe you see in the overlap there, the presentation, not just of God, but specifically uh, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of God, the, the second person of the Trinity. I believe we see Jesus coming forth in this burning bush. And we see Moses acknowledging a worshipful mindset as he takes his shoes off. Uh, we, we see God revealing himself as the great I am. None of us would walk away from that saying that was an angel, an angel only, that interacted with Moses. There's, there's a real depth to that experience that transcends it being just an angel or a created being. Um, I, th- I think we can, we can all be confident that God specifically was speaking to him here in Exodus chapter 3. A similar passage we could find in Judges chapter 6 in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Orpah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him... Verse 14, and the Lord turned to him, not just the angel of the Lord, but the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. You can continue to read through that interaction and you can see uh, a, a deeper interaction than just Gideon interacting with an angel that we understand in the New Testament to be those that came and announced births about John the Baptist and about Jesus. There's a deeper understanding, I believe, here about who the angel of the Lord is. This is the first mention of him in Scripture back here in Genesis chapter 16. What we also find in Scripture is that he is no longer mentioned, this angel of the Lord, after Jesus comes as a man. 
His presence vanishes in Scripture. We don't have the angel of the Lord coming anymore. We see worshipful experiences here with these people interacting with the angel of the Lord. Hagar has a worshipful experience as she responds to this angel of the Lord. We know at other times when it is truly just an angel, those angels deter that type of worship, right? Revelation 19, don't worship me. I'm just a created being. Worship God, okay? Um, So I think there's strong support about this being uh, Jesus in Old Testament form here. Um, In verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 10, there's promises made by this angel of the Lord that only God could fulfill. It says in verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Hagar seems to identify this being as divine in her response. Uh, She talks about um, God being the one who sees her and her having seen God, her having experienced God here at the end of chapter 16. So just to kind of, as we move into this, understanding that this is more than just an angel. This isn't Gabriel or Michael that we're talking about here that delivers a message to her. I believe this is this is God in Old Testament form uh, as, as Jesus, who's yet to take on permanently the body of a man. And we do believe in the New Testament that Philippians teaches us that when he takes on the form of a servant, takes on the form of a man, that the language, the wordage used there is that Jesus is now forever the God-man. Okay, he's forever the God-man. In the Old Testament, he takes on human form at times, but then he returns to his his Old Testament form or his pre-incarnate form. But then in the New Testament, Jesus becomes a man. And he dies a human death and he's resurrected to a glorified body. The same type of body that we long for and hope for. And he continues to embody that glorified body moving forward. Sitting at the right hand of his father. Okay, so this is Old Testament Jesus before he takes on that that permanent body that we see in the New Testament. Okay, so this angel of the Lord, Jesus most likely. But again, we can disagree on that. Um, What we do know is that God comes to her. Whether it's through a messenger or whether it's him himself. Um, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. So what we see here through all of this is that Hagar's undeserved trouble, right? She didn't, she didn't ask for this. She didn't ask to be brought in as a surrogate mother for Sarah who can't have children. Her undeserved trouble, she didn't ask to even be a part of Abram's family, right? We've already discussed she was probably gifted to Abram because he went down to Egypt instead of trusting God during the time of famine. And he gets, uh, gets her as a token of appreciation for Sarah. Remember, Pharaoh takes Sarah as his wife, or, or plans to make her his wife. Probably gives Hagar as a, as a token of appreciation. So Hagar's undeserved treatment here is met unexpectedly with an unanticipated blessing. Right? She flees, she leaves, she's done. She, she's giving up on this relationship that she has with Abram and Sarah and their God. But what she finds in the wilderness is something totally unexpected, something totally unanticipated. That the God of Abram, who remember previously, up to this point, we don't really have God interacting with a woman in general, right? Beyond what that that looked like in the Garden of Eden, I mean, we've seen him come repeatedly to men. And Hagar, who's an Egyptian, not even part of Abram's line at this point, is one that God singles out and says, I'm going to speak to her, I'm going to come to her, I'm going to reveal myself to her so it's completely unexpected completely unanticipated um, for her to experience this in the wilderness what we find first here in this interaction is a god of compassion a god of compassion now again remember god is revealing these things back in the time of genesis it's who he is 
But because we know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that the same God of Genesis is the same God we serve today. So if he was a compassionate God then, he's still a compassionate God today. But he's a God of compassion. God seeks to help her even if she isn't actively seeking him. Notice this. It doesn't say that she's in the wilderness crying out to God and and begging for him to come and, and interact with her and to save her and to fix this situation. She's left. She's taking things into her hands as well. She says, I'm leaving and I'm going to the wilderness. And it says the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. God seeks to help her. Now, Maybe Moses just doesn't include it in the text. Maybe she is praying. Maybe she is crying out to this God that, that she's heard Abram and Sarah talk about. Where are you? I've, I've seen uh, examples of your existence, but where are you now? Maybe she's doing that. But it's not unlikely to think that she's just given up and doesn't believe in this God. And then he shows up on his own initiative to come and find her. One commentator said, God is oftentimes more interested in us than we are in him. That's true a lot of times, right? God's more interested in us. When we've, when we've maybe deviated from him, maybe when we've become consumed with other things, God's interest level in us continues to increase, even if ours seems to be decreasing. And he's very interested in Hagar here and demonstrates compassion to her. It's a reminder to us that God never fails to see what is going on, and he is vitally interested in everything that touches his creation. This is an example, just a small situation, a small setting, a a small family dispute that that puts God on on high alert, on red alert. This is something that he intends to deal with. He says, I'm going to come deal with this personally. This is too big to let anyone else deal with. I'm going to come down here and interact with her and fix this situation. God is always there and he's always clued in. We know this from Psalm 139. This is a an example of the truth in Psalm 139 that, that God is always aware and God is always um, seeing and understanding the things going on in our lives. In Psalm 139, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. God is very, very clear to reveal that he's aware of, of situations going on in our life, situations that we feel like maybe he's not paying attention to. Um, I think this is uh, also a reminder to us that had Sarah cried out, this story may not have unfolded in this manner. Remember, Sarah doesn't seem to take these concerns to God, doesn't seem to take her distress to God. She wants to work things out in her own way. Uh, she wants to handle her inadequacies in the way that she feels they're best handled. And so she starts to, to reason from a worldly perspective and tries to fix this situation. But we know in 1 Samuel chapter 5, remember uh, um, Hannah's crying out for a baby. She, she's distraught over the fact that she doesn't have a child. And so she's weeping before God's presence, begging for a child to be given to her. 
It's not unfathomable to think that had Sarah done this, that God may have revealed himself to her and said, Sarah, you're absolutely the promised mother of this child that's coming. Don't feel inadequate. You're going to receive this child. But we don't have any indication that Sarah cries out in that way. Instead, she says, I'll fix this. I'll handle this. So this is a reminder to us that had Sarah cried out, much like Hannah had cried out in 1 Samuel, that God may have have tended to her needs in a different way than what we see playing out here. Implications for us, a God of compassion from this section here where where, where, uh, God comes specifically for Hagar. Some implications for us. Um, God questions her not to elicit information, but to speak to her conscience. She admits what she's doing is wrong. Let's look back in Genesis chapter 16. He comes to her. He finds her by a spring of water in the wilderness. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from? And where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. There's an interaction here that God begins with. And He questions her about some things, questions her about where she's been and and where she's going. And obviously these aren't questions that that God needs answers to. God understands these. God understands the answers to these questions. But he questions her not to gain information, but to speak to her conscience. He's a God of compassion that that speaks to our conscience when we need that to be the case. And And Hagar admits her wrong and she can now embrace the solution that God's going to offer to her. God questions her not to gain information, but to speak to her conscience, which leads us into our second revelation about God this morning, a God of conviction, a God of conviction. He questions her about some things here. He speaks to her conscience. He wants her to to deal with some of the emotions that she's feeling. He wants her to to self-examine herself and to confess some things with her own lips about what is happening. First, God questions her about her actions. He says, where, where are you coming from? Where are you coming from? Um, and, and she admits, she says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. She confesses that she's revolting against her duty, right? She doesn't say, I've left my husband, right? She doesn't say, I've left my husband, Abram. She says, I've, I've left my mistress. I've left the woman that I'm supposed to be submitted to. That the relationship I have with her is that I am her servant, I am her slave, I am to be submitted to her, and I have left that duty, I have left that role. She confesses that with her own mouth. She doesn't say, I left my husband. She doesn't say, I've ran away from an abusive person. She says, I've left my mistress, Sarah. I've left her behind. God also questions her about her plans. Not just about her actions, but but what are you planning to do now? What's your future plans to handle this situation? He says, where are you going We know that where he finds her, and the way that Moses lays it out, is that she is found by a spring on the way to Shur. S-H-U-R. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 7, we get an indication of where this place is. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. The indication from the route that she's taken seems to be that she's headed home. She plans to go back to Egypt. She comes from Egypt. She hails from Egypt. She was gifted to Abram and Sarah as a gift from the Pharaoh. And so she says, this is what I've been experiencing. This is the new God that I've been exposed to. This is the, the, the followers of this God that I've been exposed to. I'm headed out. I'm headed back home to my previous life. 
I think it's important to note here that, that God intervenes before she can do that. God intervenes before she can do that. And I put in my notes, God is in the business of guarding and protecting people from returning to their old life of sin. First Peter 1 Peter 1.5, we, we examined in our C groups recently that, that God is the one who guards us and protects us for the inheritance that he has for us on that glorious day when Jesus comes back. Hebrews is all about God securing us and, and causing us to persevere, causing us not to fall away from the faith. Here's an example of God coming to Hagar, who has been exposed. We don't know if Hagar's a believer or not. We don't know if she's been justified or not. We know she's been exposed to the family of God, and she's been introduced into these blessings. Okay, um, God comes after her and says, no, 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 you're not going back to Egypt. I'm not going to allow it. Now, he doesn't come that way. He doesn't come and say, you're not allowed to go back to Egypt. What we're going to find is that God, uh, God plays this type of fiddle, these promises, this music that entices her to come back to where she doesn't want to go to Egypt anymore. He, he wins her heart back to where she says, okay, I had plans to go back to Egypt. I was done with this. But after my experience, I'm actually going to go back. I'm going to go back to where I just came from. And, and God wins her heart through this interaction. God's in the business of making sure that people don't, true people of him, of his, do not go back to their sinful life. Um, what God reveals to her is that the place of blessing for her is back with God's people. And I put in my notes that God does not justify her exit because of hypocritical people. Leaving God's people is never a pathway to blessing. And I think this is so true for us in the New Testament, right? It's not uncommon to hear about people who say, I grew up in church or I've gone to church a, a large portion of my life, but I'm done with the way people act there. I'm done with their hypocrisy. I'm done with the hurt that they cause. I've been hurt by the church. And so the answer to that solution is to then leave God's people. And that's not the answer. It's not the answer. We don't leave the, the capital C church, God's people, because we're, we're discontent with the sin that still remains there that God's still working on. Now, there may be times where it's appropriate to leave a specific local church that the hurt caused by, by pastoral leadership is something that can't be reconciled, that can't be worked through. But to then say we're done with church in general or we're done with God's people in general is not the appropriate response because hey, or, uh, Sarah and Abram have mistreated her. I mean, they've abused her. That they've used her like a, like, a, like a piece of property. We talked about that last week. She was brought in to basically hold a baby in her womb. And after nine months, they were going to be done with her. Give us the baby. This is what we wanted from you. Now we're done with you. She was a piece of property to them. And God could have easily said, you know what? You're right. Like my, my, my people have completely mistreated you. You're justified in leaving. Go back to Egypt and I'm going to take care of you and bless you there. No, God says, you got to come back home. You got to come back to these people that are abusive, that have mishandled you. We're going to fix it. We're going to fix this situation. And I think it is a reminder to us that, that leaving God's people is never a pathway to blessing. He has all these promises that he wants to give to her, but it's sort of contingent on her going back home, going back to her new home with Abram and Sarah. So he calls, God calls her back, uh, calls her to return to her mistress to fulfill her duties there. In order to be lifted up from our distress, we are often called to humble action. All right, God wants to lift her up. She's in distress in the wilderness. God wants to fix this. God wants to repair her broken heart. She's been hurt. She's been abused. 
God wants to fix it. God wants to bring her out of this distress. But he also calls her to something that would cause a lot of humility if she's going to follow through with it. God, or Hagar is not called to justify her actions because Sarah was in the wrong. Instead, she is called to recognize her contribution to the problem. God says, where have you been? And where are you going? She says, I'm, I'm leaving my mistress. I'm leaving my, my responsibilities to serve that woman. And I'm going back home to Egypt. God says, you can't go back to Egypt. You, you got to return and you got to go back to her. Look what he says. The angel Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. This would have been really hard for her, right? I mean, there, there was a huge disagreement. She gets prideful in her pregnancy, rubs it in a little bit. Sarah overreacts, starts to reap out harsh punishment upon her. This big blow up, this big disagreement. I mean, I kind of imagine it playing out. They're probably yelling at each other in the tent. I'm done with this. I'm not going to serve you anymore. She storms out and then Abram and Sarah don't see her again. And, and there's this big blow up. And I'm sure that harsh things were said between both for Hagar to then humble herself and go back and, and enter that tent once again and say, I'm here and I'm sorry I shouldn't have left and I'm here to keep serving you. I was in the wrong. I mean, that would have been very difficult because we've already seen from the text, if, if Hagar has any culpability, it's that she rubbed it in a little bit that she got pregnant. Sarah seems to be far more culpable in this situation. She, she put out harsh treatment. The word very similar to the word used for what the Egyptians do to the Israelites when they're in slavery. This would have been a, a, a humble call for Hagar to return. But we know from Scripture that oftentimes when God lifts us up, it's through an attitude and an action of humility. In James chapter 4, James chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, he will exalt you. In First Peter uh, chapter 5, Verse 6, it says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. God identifies not what Sarah has done wrong in this situation, but what Hagar has done wrong in this situation. She should not have left the situation. And I put in my notes, it's hard to return to something you have run away from. It requires humility for Hagar to come back home. She has to identify her contribution to the problem. She has to be responsible for her role in the deterioration of their relationship. It's hard sometimes to, to say things and to, uh, to do things that you have to then go back on. You feel strongly about something, you make a statement about something, and then to have to come back humbly and express regret over that. Um, an example, we, sometimes we have uh, families at Trinity that get really mad about a situation, don't really see clearly the situation, kind of storm out, take their kids and leave, and then it's not long before the phone's calling and saying, hey, uh, we want to know if we can come back to Trinity. Like, like we, we left and, and we've seen things a little bit more clearly. Maybe we were in the wrong there. We'd like to come back. We, don't, we didn't realize how good we had it and we want to come back home to our school. This is what Hagar has to do. She has to come back and say, I, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have left. I shouldn't have left and I need to come back to where I belong. Um, and this would have been very, very difficult for her, I believe. There's some implications for us as well. So this is playing out from a narrative standpoint, but I think there's some things that we take away from this interaction as well. Our responsibility to submit to authorities in our life is not based on how well they treat us. 
And that's difficult because a lot of times we want to say, and, and we live in a, in a situation oftentimes where if we feel like we're being mistreated, we can leave. You know, we can leave jobs. We can leave situations where we feel like we're being mistreated. And at times that's appropriate. But what's not appropriate is to stay in a situation and not be submissive on the grounds that I'm not being treated fairly in this situation. God doesn't address the mistreatment that she experienced from Sarah. He says, go home and be submissive to her. Our responsibility to submit to authorities in our life is not based on how well we're being treated. We know this from Ephesians chapter 6 in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 5. Bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. All right, so you've got Paul interacting with the church at Ephesus, and there were some people that are in slavery there, right? Because he talks about some of those things being broken down that, that in, in Christ's family were not uh, divided economically. But from a practical standpoint, he says, slaves, be submitted to your masters. But lest we think that he's talking to slaves with good masters, he says in verse 9, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. There's some rebuke towards the masters here. He says, slaves, go and, and be submissive to your masters and masters start being good masters. But the contingency isn't slaves, be obedient to your masters if they're good masters. It's be obedient to your masters because they're your masters. They're authorities that, that fall under God, that God has placed there over you. A God of conviction, he, he speaks to her conscience. He makes her deal with her actions, right? He comes in and comes from an inquisitive manner. And sometimes that can be so helpful not to just tell somebody what the situation is, but to have them self-identify the situation. I try to do that with students that I have to discipline in my office, Rather than just bringing them in and saying, this is how it is, I'm oftentimes very inquisitive to their conscience. I want them to speak to the situation. I want them to examine the situation. I want the Holy Spirit to have room to work in their heart to where they have to look in and see their role and their responsibility in the situation. And that's what God does here with Hagar. He speaks to her conscience by being inquisitive so that she has to reconcile her role in this situation. And that brings us to the, to the last point, the last thing that we see about God here. A God of consolation. A God of consolation. So he's a God of compassion. He, he seeks her out. He knows what's going on in the situation. He knows she's been mistreated. So God comes to her in her distress. He doesn't just come to, to console her, though. He comes with conviction. He wants her to see she played a role in this. She played a role in why she is where she is. That it's not just that everybody was out to get her, that, that she contributed to it, and she needs to fix the parts that she's, that she's messed up. But then he does come in with consolation. What do we mean by consolation? Um, definition for that word, it's comfort received after loss or disappointment. Comfort received after loss or disappointment. Hagar definitely needs that. She's experienced some disappointment. She's experienced some loss here. It's also a person... Who provides comfort to one who has suffered. And God certainly does these things for Hagar as he concludes his interaction with her. So back in Genesis chapter 16. 
He tells her to return to her mistress and submit to her. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. There's some promises that are made to Hagar. First of all, a promised son. A promised son. And it's a son with a specific name, Ishmael. And Ishmael means God hears. God hears. And so God takes initiative here and says, not only am I giving you a son, I want you to name him something specifically. Why? Because I don't want you to ever forget, Hagar, that I'm a God who hears. When you felt like you weren't being heard, when you felt like you were being attacked by my people, I'm a God who hears. I'm a God who hears you in the midst of your distress. And I want you to always know that. I want you to know every time you look at your son, every time you call his name, I want you to be reminded of the fact that I'm a God who hears. It's a constant reminder to her in her future times of distress as well. Uh, But in in promising her a son, we find that it's not a son that's going to be easy to deal with. Um, Verse 12, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. He's going to be very independent, this this idea of being a wild donkey. Um, He's going to be very independent, um, and he's going to live in the wilderness. Um, and he's not going to always be easy to deal with. I think it's also important to note towards the end of the chapter here, uh, verse 15, and Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram names the boy, and it's a reminder to Abram of his mistake and why he must in the future call out rather than try to work things out in his own. See, Abram has to name him Ishmael, and, and so in naming him, it's also a reminder to Abram that God hears God hears in times of distress, and we failed to call upon him so that he could hear from us. Me and Sarah tried to work this out on our own, and we created a, a, a real debacle here where, where we've caused a lot of family problems, and, and God has been very faithful to remind us through how he interacted with this slave girl that he is a God who hears. And so I think God specifically wants Abram to name this child as a point of reminder to him. There's also no indication in the text that Sarah assumes responsibility for the boy. I think God uh, allowed Ishmael to remain under the care of Hagar, um, that he blesses her with a son. Doesn't bless Sarah with a son through Hagar, right? He blesses Hagar with a son and call his name Ishmael. And then secondly, the promise made to Hagar is he promises her descendants. Promises her descendants. I mean, Hagar's in a situation here. We don't know how old she is. She may have been really young. Uh, She may have been really young. And so uh, she's put into a position where she's a slave. She's a slave to foreigners. She's she's given a husband in the form of Abram, but not really. She still is a slave. And so there may have been a lot of confusion for her. I'm destined to this, it looks like. I'm destined to never have a real husband. Am I ever going to produce anything that outlives me? And so God says, absolutely, you're going to have a child. You're going to have a child, Ishmael. And he is going to produce... Uh, the same the same type of descendants as as Isaac will. There's going to be a multitude of descendants that comes from your son, and so there's there's reassurance to Hagar, I think, about her long term future here, as well. But these also are not necessarily descendants that are blessed. Looking back at what he promises about Ishmael, everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. There's an understanding there that. Ishmael and his descendants are going to be at odds with their brothers. And we're going to see as we continue to work through Genesis that 
Ishmael and Isaac have some disagreements that lead to Ishmael being banished, and, and we see that conflict continue to arise. And so while uh, those living in the Middle East could trace their lineage back to Abram, there's still conflict that exists. There's still this idea of Ishmael having his hand against everyone and everyone's hand being against him. These are things that God promised in the midst of this tragedy. But I think believing here that, that, that God is making promises to Hagar, it's a reminder to us that God is at work with people who are not just physical descendants of Abram. Lest we ever read the Old Testament and think that God only deals with Abram's descendants, this is another reminder that God works with people outside the Jewish nation as well. Some implications for us from this section, a God of consolation. God reveals himself to be better than what she plans to return to. Remember, she's on her way back to Egypt, but God reveals himself in such a way that she determines to go home, to go back to Abram. We know that because it says Hagar bore Abram a son. There's the indication there that she does go home, that she does restore fellowship with both Abram and Sarah. God reveals himself to be better than what she planned to return to. Secondly, Hagar was faithful to relate the goodness of God in her life to others. This is important for us. She experienced God. She experienced a God who came to her in her time of distress and, and God fixes her distress, but she doesn't just, she doesn't just forget, right? Remember those that, that had leprosy in the New Testament that Jesus heals and, and they seem to forget the source of that healing and, and the, they go running excited that they've been restored to full health and only one comes back and, and expresses thanksgiving to Christ for the healing. Hagar doesn't seem to forget that. How do we know that? Well, for one, she goes home and tells Abram, his name has to be Ishmael. Abram may have looked at her and said, I hate that name. Like, if that's a preference thing, we're not naming my first son Ishmael. Hagar says, you don't understand. God says we have to. This is to be his name. What do you mean God says we have to? Well, I had an experience with God, and she probably relates that experience. Uh, God came to me in the wilderness. When I was done with you and done with your family and I was headed home, he intervened and he came to me and he told me this. He told me I was going to have a son. He told me his name is to be Ishmael. She related to Abram the goodness of that experience. But look what else she does in the text. In verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Again, relating the idea that the angel of the Lord was more than just an angel. I've seen the one who looks after me. Verse 14, therefore the well was called Be'er Leharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And the name, of that, that, the name of that well means the God who sees and listens. Okay, And so it became known that way, not just to Hagar. right? It wasn't just Hagar and Ishmael. Hey, Ishmael, that's the name of that well over there. And No, she, she seemingly spreads this encounter so that this well, this well became known by that name. Because she was faithful to express to others what had happened to her at that well. And so it takes on this name because of her testimony. It's a reminder to us that when God comes to us in our times of distress, when he heals and, and protects and, and fulfills promises, how important it is for us to express those experiences to others so that others can glean the encouragement from that as well. Um, and then lastly here under implications, Hagar gloried in the one who made the promises rather than the promises themselves, right? You don't see her focusing so heavily on the son that's been promised to her or the descendants that have been promised to her. 
She's excited and thrilled, and she's giving praise and honor and glory to the one who made the promises. See, she's been introduced now to the, to the, to the God of Abram and not just heard about him. Remember, Job says, I, I've heard about you. Now I've seen you. Now I've experienced you. And that's true for Hagar, I think, as well. She had maybe sat around with Abram and Sarah during family devotion time, and so she's heard and heard and heard. This is her first real encounter, her first real experience with God. And, and now she's, she's glorying in him and not just what she can get from him. She, she's, she's praising this God who sees and hears and understands her distress and not just praising him for the things that he can give her. So some application for us this morning. Some application for us. Let us praise God for who he is and turn to him faithfully in time of need. Let us praise God for who he is. Who is he? He's a God of compassion. He's a God who comes to us in our times of need. And there may have been times where you were at your lowest of lows and you had done everything that you knew to work out a situation and, and God came to you and, and, and began to work in your life in a way that he'd never done before. And he pulled you out of that time of distress. Some of you may have had experiences like that. He is a God of compassion. And he's a God that comes after us sometimes even when we're not coming after him. He's a God who pursues us because he loves us deeply and wants us. And he comes to Hagar and says, you're not going to go down that route. You're not going to go back to Egypt. I'm not going to allow it. But he didn't come forcefully like a parent just beating it over her head, right? He came and said, why? he basically revealed to her, why would you do that? Why would you do that? You, you can come back to this. This is what I can promise you. Come back to me. And so we see her coming back. He's a God of compassion. He's a God of conviction. And we can be so thankful that God doesn't let us stay in our sin. And God doesn't coddle us. Right? Like, like I've experienced parents that, that have kids that they think can do absolutely no wrong. They're never part of the problem. Right? It's always somebody else's kid that's the instigator. It's always somebody else's kid that needs to be blamed. God comes to Hagar and says, what's your role in this? Well, I didn't submit to my mistress like I was supposed to, and I, and I left her. And God says, you need to fix that. And that's not to say that God didn't fix things on Sarah's end. I'm sure there was an encounter with her as well. I'm sure that, that Abram and her had to fix things, and, and I'm sure that there was some, some dealing on that end as well that we're not privy to, that God doesn't clue us into. But God says, we're talking about you, Hagar. We're not talking about her. What's your role in this responsibility? He's a God of conviction. He doesn't, he doesn't coddle us and he doesn't, he doesn't allow us to overlook our own issues and our own responsibilities. And he calls her out so that she can deal with that and make things right. And he's a God of consolation. He meets us where we are and, and he makes promises to us, the type of promises that we need in the midst of our distress. Right? Hagar's struggling with her own identity as well. And God promises her some things to reassure her about her future. So let us praise God for who he is and turn to him faithfully in time of need. Underneath that, some things that I wrote, God's promises continue despite our unfaithfulness. Now, we can praise God for the fact that, that Abram wasn't, wasn't abandoned here. right? Sarah's not abandoned here. God doesn't alter his plans and say, man, you guys have no faith in me. I'm not going to give you a son now. I keep promising, you don't believe, and so now I'm just going to change the plans. I'm not going to do that. No. God promises continue despite our unfaithfulness. Abram fails, but God does not take back his promises. And then God reveals himself as one who sees distress and affliction and hears our cries for help. And he's promised that he's going to deal with those things, even if it's not in our own timing, right? We talked last week that sometimes 
what God promises and God calls us to demands patience on our part. We have assurance in Scripture that all of our distress, all of the injustice done to us will be resolved. In Second um, Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, a passage that we looked at real extensively several years ago. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Okay, going along with the theme that we've been talking about, trials and sufferings that come to believers. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. So even if we don't experience that relief, even if we don't experience resolution to all of our distresses that we experience here, we do have assurance and, and, and promises that when Jesus comes back, he is a God who hears, he is a God who sees, he is a God that plans to bring justice and to repay all the afflictions that we've experienced. And so we can praise God this morning for who he is and turn to him faithfully in time of need. I'm going to ask you to, um, to, to prepare for a time of prayer. Um, and before I close this in prayer, I want to give you a time of reflection this morning. Because I know recently through prayer requests and, and just discussions, there's things that, that we are going through, things that um, that we can't fix on our own, things that we can't resolve on our own. And so I want to give you some time to personally pray in light of the things that we've looked at this morning. There may be those that are experiencing times of distress right now that, that haven't even been made public to anybody in our church. Things that you're struggling through, things that you're struggling with. And I want to encourage you this morning to cry out to a God who sees and a God who hears. I want to give you an opportunity to praise God for who he is. He's a God of compassion. He's a God of conviction. He's a God who consoles us when we need it as well. I want to encourage you to turn to him this morning in your time of need, and to express those needs to him, something that Abram and Sarah failed to do, something that God reminded them through Hagar that they were fully capable of doing. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we we do praise you and thank you that you are a God who who sees into every crevice of our life and knows every detail not just as things are happening, but Father, we know that you see into the future and you anticipate things that we've yet to even know about. So God, we praise you and thank you that you're a God who sees, a God who understands, a God who hears when we cry out to you. God, I know in the past several weeks there's been um, several things that have been mentioned that um, that need that type of God to resolve. Father, I know we, uh, we prayerfully mentioned the, um, the couple connected with Snowbird who um, experienced the tragedy of this, uh, this woman losing her husband unexpectedly. And Father, I know that as she continues to move further and further away from that incident, that the calls and the text and the encouragement from her friends and family begins to decrease, and, and it's at that time when she truly needs, in the midst of her distress, a God who hears and understands. So God, I pray for her this morning that you would encourage and strengthen her in the midst of her loss. 
that you would remind her of the promises that you've made to her in a way that would cause her to not deviate from her faith. Father, we pray for the Carroll family that's mentioned by Bobby and Yvonne who are dealing with so much right now with the, with the birth of a newborn and then their two-year-old being diagnosed with leukemia and so much stress that's been added to their family and knowing how to deal with these situations. Father, I pray that you would bring relief to them through those that surround them, family and friends, and that you would be a very real presence in their life, that they'd be able to turn to you and know that you are a God who sees and hears and understands their distress. Father, I pray for the situations that have been mentioned here in our church. And as we talked about in our C group this week, Father, we know that at times some of the things that we talk about as, as, as trials and difficulties seem minor in, in relation to other things that we hear about going on around us and around the world. But Father, we know that trials and difficulties are anything that would cause our faith to be attacked and cause us to question your goodness. And so, Father, I know that there are things going on in our church as well, that um, that we need you to help resolve. And Father, I pray that you would be that God that we need today and in our church family. Father, I pray that, that through uh, your text this morning, through your word, that we would be reminded that you are a God that we can turn to and that we can trust that you will meet our needs exactly where we're at. And so God, I pray for the situations in our church um, that you would resolve those situations, that you would um, strengthen our faith in the midst of those situations. And God, we do praise you and thank you for who you are this morning. We thank you for the compassion that you demonstrate to us, for the Holy Spirit that you've sealed us with, who does convict us of our sins so that uh, we're constantly reminded of the gospel in our life. We are thankful that you are a God who consoles us in the midst of hurting Father, as we've examined recently, that we can be sorrowful in our trials, but always rejoicing. So God, I pray that you would continue to create a people here at Sovereign Hope that are characterized that way. People that have increasing faith in you, increasing trust in you. And that the trials that are brought to us that are meant to test the genuineness of our faith would purify us in the same way that gold is purified through fire. God, help us to constantly be reminded of texts like today that remind us of, of your compassion and your understanding towards your children. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.